Bible with you tonight, turn to Psalm 135, and we'll finish this uh, particular psalm up, and it's good to see you tonight. And uh, just a couple of things that uh, I want to say before I forget about them. Uh, people have asked about Sutton. He's kind of taking a break right now. He's still in the, the NICU, the Neonatal Intensive Care Unit, and they're kind of giving him a break. They have taken so much blood out of him, they needed to give him a chance to build it back up, and they're giving him vitamins and iron and that type of thing. And then tomorrow, if you think about it, pray for him, because all of this uh, that he's going through is pointing to something that may be wrong with his liver. And uh, for uh, some of the problems he's been having, the numbers, the doctor said the other day there's like 72, up to 72 different reasons why some of this is happening. And the blood tests are doing together uh, doing tomorrow is going to address all of those things so that they can find out what's going on. So it's a big one, and uh, they're going to be taking it out. They have to send it off. It'll take three weeks to get it back. And uh, so uh, perhaps Taylor and Jennifer can take him home and see their regular pediatrician and wait for the results to see what is going on. So uh, pray for him. Pray for Mama Lou. You notice she and Sammy are not here tonight. She had a big cancer, a fast-growing, aggressive cancer taken off of her scalp. She's in a lot of pain, and uh, so she is resting up and recovering from that, so pray for her. Uh, you've noticed that uh, we've asked you to pray for Connie, and she is out of the hospital, and she's at home, so pray for her while she recovers from uh, her surgery. And uh, there's probably something else that I'm supposed to say. Okay, uh, Lisa Anderson she had been doing well. They'd taken her off of the uh, ventilator. They had to put her back on a BiPAP machine today. That's not as bad as a ventilator, but it is. I had one of those for a while, and uh, it, it's not, not fun. So uh, pray for her and uh, lift her up before the Lord. And You can see uh, everything on your uh, prayer list tonight, so be sure and look that over and pray and see how you can minister to them. But uh, let's go get on our uh, text for tonight, Psalm 135, verses 19 through 21, and it finishes it up. And this whole psalm has actually been about praise. It uh, started with that, now it ends with it too. And it says in uh, verse 19, Bless the Lord, O house of Israel. Bless the Lord, O house of Aaron. Bless the Lord, O house of Levi. You who fear the Lord, bless the Lord. Blessed be the Lord out of Zion, who dwells in Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. And the uh, word blessed there, uh, in the New Testament, the Greek word for that is eulageo. We get our word eulogy from that. It means to say something good about someone. But Hebrew is a little different. When it says bless the Lord, it's a synonym for praise. And so we think about praising the Lord. What do we do when we praise the Lord? Well, we talk about Him. And we talk about what He has done. And we talk about who He is. And I think sometimes we spend far too much time talking about what God does instead of talking about who He is. Someone said one time, Oh, the Lord has been good. Look how He answered my prayer. And someone answered and said, God would still be good if He didn't even hear your prayer God is good simply because He is God, not because of what He does. We get the benefit of the things that He does, 
but he's always good because he is always God. And we need to talk about, when we pray, sometimes his mercy, his grace, his omnipresence, his all-powerfulness, all-knowing. All we need to think about him in terms of righteousness and sovereignty and those kind of things. And the reason the title of this particular message is uh, written the way that it is, is sometimes I get stuck when I'm praying. I uh, remember a friend of mine, he said that in his church, he uh, grew up in Tahlequah, and he said there was an older guy in there, and he was asked to pray before the offering. And uh, he was praying, and he said, Dear Lord, and he started praying about some things, and then he just stopped. And my friend said, you know, as teenagers, you have to peek when somebody stops praying. And uh, nobody's saying anything, just quiet. And he hadn't said in Jesus' name, he hadn't said amen, just quiet. And so he looks, and about that time, the uh, old guy goes, well, Lord, I forgot what I was going to say, amen. And of course, they all couldn't help but laugh. Hey, we've done that. There have been times when I have been praying and there was something on my heart, but I may have gotten distracted, may have been, uh, uh, you know, sometimes just at a loss for words. What do you say when you don't know what to say? Well, that's always a time to think about who the Lord is and to offer Him praise. And so the psalmist here is telling them, praise the Lord, bless the Lord, all of those things. We ought to be lifting Him up and it ought to be uh, continually. Now, here's, here's what I thought of with the first phrase in here. It's out of verse 19. Bless the Lord, O house of Israel. Now, point number one is it should be instinctive to praise the Lord, especially for Israel. Think about who Israel is. Think about what the Lord has done for them. Think about what they have experienced. I mean, the whole Old Testament is written about pretty much nothing but Israel and uh, the times they've been attacked and the times that they sinned and the times that they fell, the times that they did right, the times that they conquered, the times that they were defeated. I mean, they are in it all the way through, aren't they? And so you think about what all they have done and what all God has done in them and what God has done through them and sometimes what God has done to them. Israel should never have to have a command to praise the Lord. Do you agree with that? Never should even have to have a command. It ought to be the first thing they did. It ought to be on their mind all day long. But before we get too high and mighty about Israel, what has God done for us? Think about how he revealed himself to us. Think about what you know about Romans chapter 3, quoting the Old Testament, by the way. There's no one who seeks after God. There's none who understands and all have gone out of the way. All have become unprofitable, all of that. Think about that. That's us. Think about Ephesians 2. You're familiar with that, that we were dead just as dead as anybody in the world is today who is lost. We were dead in trespasses and sins, and we were going along according to the course of this world, Paul says, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience. Paul is just using that to say, that was you before you were saved. And then those two wonderful words of Scripture, but God. Amen? 
but God. And then it says, who is rich in mercy. That's one of his attributes. Made us alive. That's his power. That's something that he does. And he took us as dead, rebellious sinners, like logs going down a, a, a river, uh, unable to do anything about our condition. God intervened. And he made us alive in Christ and seated us even now. I don't know how this works, but tonight you and I as believers are seated with Christ in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's our position. And so we relate to God as a father, not as a judge, not as just somebody who is big and powerful and all of that. No, he is our father because of what Christ has done. And that is an eternal relationship. We have been both born again into the family of God and adopted into the family of God. Here on earth, it's one or the other, but in Christ, we have both. Born so that we have his nature. We're partakers of the divine nature, Peter said. And then we also are adopted in the family. And under Roman law, if you were adopted, you could never be put out of the will. You could never be put out of the house. A natural-born child could, but not a child who is adopted. So we have the best of both. We receive his nature, his spirit, all of those things. And we also receive the guarantee of absolute security in the Lord. So what problems do you have again? And what is it that you're so down in the mouth about again? And we all do that when it ought to be instinctive that we praise the Lord because we too are the people of God. Bless the Lord, O house of Israel. Bless the Lord. Shouldn't even have to be told to do that. Think about it. They have DNA from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that they are loved by God. They have been delivered, and all the Jews have benefited. Even the unbelieving ones benefit from all of that to some degree. And I'm reminded of Deuteronomy 7, verse 7 and 8. Isn't this beautiful? The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you. He's speaking to Israel because you were more numerous than other peoples or nations, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it was because the Lord loved you, just simply because he loved you, and kept the oath that he swore to your ancestors, that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the hand of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. You know what God is saying? There wasn't anything particularly impressive about you. In fact, it's hinted in this, I didn't even need you. Think about that. I know sometimes you hear some songs and you hear some people, well, the Lord needed you to do this. No, he didn't, because he could speak a word and do far more than anything we could do. The Lord didn't need Israel. The Lord chose Israel. And why did he do it? He tells us in these verses, simply because he loved them. And he didn't love them because of who they were. He didn't love them because of what they could do. He didn't love them because of what they possessed. He loved them just like he loves you, just cause. And he loves you with an everlasting love. And that love is proven by the death of his son on the cross of Calvary. So whatever else you know, know tonight that you are loved by God. So praise should be instinctive for the people of God. That's the point. Number two, praise should be intergenerational. 
One of the things I've been impressed with in both the Old and the New Testament is God has new upcoming generations on His heart, and so should we. You know, sometimes we want to long for the good old days, but the good old days don't include the children who are being raised right now who in 40 years will call this the good old days. That's kind of amazing to think about. But I remember uh, fondly the times when I was growing up and uh, I can remember some of the 60s and I can remember pretty much all of the 70s. And, um, you know, I enjoyed those times and the 80s were good. Those were good times. And I remember all of those. You know what? My parents didn't particularly like those times. My parents would watch, probably maybe some of you, uh, some of you long-haired, dope-smoking, maggot-infested hippie freaks, as you would be out there uh, marching and protesting and all of that. Just kidding. And uh, my parents didn't think that was nostalgic. My parents don't look back or wouldn't look back on the music of the 70s and the 60s and go, oh, listen to that. Boy, that brings back memory. They hated all of that kind of stuff. There were the clothes that we wore. My dad never wore a pair of bell-bottoms in his life, right? You know what he said about all of that? He goes, all of y'all that wear those, you ought to be apologizing to all the sailors, right? Told me one time I looked like I was off of a box of Cracker Jacks and uh, that kind of stuff. And remember the stripes that we wore? I mean, uh, hey, I know my name is Greg, but I kind of look like Greg Brady in a lot of stuff. Those vests with the fringe, they hated all that kind of stuff. Hair down, you know, below the ears. My dad absolutely hated all of that kind of stuff. You know what he looked back as the good old days? He was born in 1933, so there's a little bit of the 30s that he remembers. He remembered the 40s, and he remembered his brothers going off to war, that type of thing. And he also remembered the 50s. The 50s were his decade. He liked the cars. He liked the music. He liked the styles. That's when he was in the military wearing his sharp marine uniform. That's when he went to Korea and fought. Got his purple hearts there. All of that type of stuff. It's when he met my mom. That's when he uh, got saved during that time. He also surrendered to the ministry. That's when he started going to... Uh, Washita Baptist College then, now it's a university, and um, all of that. Those are the good old days to him. Now, let's go back and let's ask my grandparents. Were you a big fan of the 50s? I kind of doubt it. I kind of think they didn't think a whole lot of the 50s and uh, rock and roll and Elvis and all of that kind of stuff because their time period, well, my grandpa, the one I knew anyway, was born in... 1910 what was it like in 1910 in northwest arkansas well i can guarantee you one thing there weren't any cars to speak of had to go outside to go to the bathroom and by outside you know what i mean by outside don't you no electricity probably uh, didn't have much variety in food. I would imagine there were probably more times than I could fathom where they were hungry, and I mean really hungry. Think about how life has changed. Think about somebody like 
him, Mitchell Finn, born in 1910 and died in uh, 1998. What did he see change? Airplanes, passenger planes, jets, somebody walking on the moon, space shuttles, computers. Hey, by the time he died, everybody had a computer in their house and on the desk. Cell phones, not as advanced as they are now, but he grew up in a time when they probably didn't even have a telephone available to them and uh, lived to see a time where we carry them around in our pockets like Dick Tracy or something like that, right? Think about all of that type of stuff. Now, what happens is every generation thinks the time that they live is just it. It's just cool. It's just awesome. And that's what we relate to. And as we age, we get a little nostalgic for the things that we had in our youth. And that's why sometimes even in church there are worship wars that have gone on because older people like to sing the songs that they sang when they were teenagers, when they were kids, what, what church used to be like when they were in their 20s and 30s. And so new stuff kind of throws them and that type of thing. And uh, it, it just is the way we are wired. And when you look in the Bible, you find that it's not much different. What did Moses do at the end of his life? He wrote the book of Deuteronomy, which is a retelling of the whole story. And what was he doing? He was reminiscing all of those kind of things. We like to do that. That's why old people tell stories. And that's why we <clears throat> repeat stories. Have I told you this? Uh, yeah, yeah, you, you told me that. Well, I'm going to tell you again anyway. I might have missed something and you probably weren't listening anyway. And we go on and on and on with, with that type of thing. You know what's really sad? It's when you tell a story and you don't realize that you've already told it. And it uh, just happens. Ronald Reagan said that's one of the perks of living past the age of 40. You have permission to repeat your stories kind of the way it is isn't it because we like those times we related to those times we thought about those times now that's a lengthy way of saying this generations don't always get along real well and what the young ones are pushing for progress and moving ahead and something new the older ones are saying hold back where are you going with this what that that makes no sense to me and some of it doesn't some of it doesn't. But neither did your generation to your parents or grandparents either. And so one of the things that the Lord is concerned about in both the Old and the New Testament is passing the faith down to new generations. Have you ever read anything like that in the Bible? And uh, that's what it means here. The praise should be generational or intergenerational because he says, look at this, bless the Lord... Now, we look at this, O house of Aaron. What is a house to us? It's a structure made out of two-befores and all of that kind of stuff. That's not the way they thought of it in the Bible. Now, they could, and uh, they could talk about building a house for the Lord and David building a house for his family, but not, not in this kind of context. So often, the word house, you might think of uh, maybe our British ancestors if you come from that and uh, what did the royalty the entitled people have this is sir so-and-so and he is from the house of Windsor 
the house of Tudor, the house of whatever names that they would uh, have on that. It meant their lineage. It meant their descendants. It meant their relatives. And so when the psalmist writes this, this is a long, long time after Aaron, Moses' brother, has been dead. But he says, Bless the Lord, O house of Aaron. And then he goes backwards in verse 20 from the house of Aaron all the way back to Aaron's ancestor. Bless the Lord, O house of Levi. Levi was one of the sons of uh, uh, Jacob, you remember. And so uh, Levi was first, and then Aaron, and then he says, and all the house, all of you who are the descendants of Levi and Aaron should be blessing the Lord. What's the point? This is something we ought to be teaching our children, modeling for our children, and passing on to our children. This is in the heart of God. In Psalm 45, verse 17, the psalmist says, I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. I will cause your name. I'm going to be intentional to bring up your name and your memory and who you are and what you have done, Lord, to all generations. That means teach your babies. Even though, you know, oh, they're an infant, they don't know. Yeah, but their mind is recording it. Sing those songs and those hymns to your babies. Read Bible verses to them. Tell them stories when they can't even understand it. Get their mind programmed to all of that. And do it when they are older and do it when they're teenagers and do it when they are older than that. They come back and visit your house and they bring a spouse and some children with them. Oh, they're too old for all of that. No, they're not. It's your house. Pray over your meals. Talk about what God has done. Share those stories. Share your testimony. Do all of those kind of things because your kids need to hear it because this is for all generations. All generations. Um, in Joshua chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, here's a little strategy you might think about. Even if your children aren't living in your home anymore, still a strategy for them and for your grandkids. Don't let them get away from it. Don't let them... Uh, kick into neutral and be comfortable there. Think about this, Joshua 4, 1 through 7. And it came to pass, when all the people had completely crossed over the Jordan, they're entering the promised land, Moses is dead, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, saying, Take for yourselves twelve men from the people, one man from every tribe, and command them, saying, Take for yourselves twelve stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan from the place where the priest's feet stood firm and you shall carry them over with you and leave them in the lodging place where you lodge tonight. Your first camp, the first uh, night in the promised land is what he's saying. Then Joshua called the twelve men whom he had appointed from the children of Israel, one man from every tribe. And Joshua said to them, Cross over before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and each one of you take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of tribes of the children of Israel. 
that this, here's a purpose, whenever you see the word that in the Bible, that's a purpose. Why? That this may be a sign among you, now look at this and pay close attention, when your children ask in time to come, in generations to come, saying, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall answer them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord when it crossed over the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan were cut off. And these stones shall be a memorial, a remembrance, a reminder to the children of Israel forever. Now God said, I want you to do something, set this up, so that in any age, in any time, and long after all of you are dead, there is a reminder there, and it's something there that is intentional. Those stones didn't just end up there by themselves, they're stacked. They are something there that are going to be prominent, so that when you are there with your kids, and maybe you're just going to go fishing in the Jordan River, if they do that, when you're walking by there, your five-year-old goes, Dad, what's that? Opportunity. Maybe your teenager goes, Boy, I haven't been here in a long time. You know, I've always wondered about those stones. Opportunity. Wide open. You can drive a Mack truck through it. Maybe your adult children, you're taking your grandchildren fishing in the Jordan, and when you come by there, your adult children who are not necessarily living for the Lord, book of Judges, they point and they go, oh yeah, you know, I forgot all about those stones. Open door to talk all about it. And that's why it's good to have scripture in your house, to have things like that, to have Christian books out and those kind of things so that when your children are in there, they're constantly reminded of the Lord and that, well, as Joshua said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That ought to be the way we think and the way our motto is. Your children are never too young to learn about Jesus and to learn the things of God. But also, can I say this? They're never too old either. You have influence even as you grow older that you don't realize an impact upon your children and your grandchildren that you don't always realize. And you dismiss so much of your life. Oh, why would they want to hear of my story? Well, they need to because there's going to, go, there's going to come a time when they will be very interested in it. I don't have anybody to ask anymore, and I have more questions now than I probably have in my life. I wish my parents and my grandparents had talked more about some of these things. We need to hear. We need to pass them on, especially the things of the Lord. They need to hear. I think it's fair to say this, that with children in your home, we can say this to them. You live by my convictions while you live in my house. Someday you can have your own, and I can't control that. But while you live here, you will live by my convictions. And here are our convictions. And you can line out the way that you live. We go to church. You're not going to stay home and loaf around and not go to church. You're going to go to church with us if you're going to live in our house. You're going to pay your bills if you live in our house. If you make a student loan, for example, is that relevant enough? It's a contract. And if you promise to pay it back in my house, if you're living here and I'm supporting you, you are going to work and 
pay back those student loans. We're not like everybody. But nobody else is doing it. Yeah, that's true. We're not like everybody else. This is an honorable thing. The Bible says, see the Mack truck thing again? The Bible says that the wicked borrows and does not repay. The Bible says that the uh, borrower is slave to the lender. We don't want you to live like that because Christ gave us freedom in Him and we want to live in financial freedom as well. See what I did there? And so all of these things are constant reminders. Well, it'll make them mad. Yeah, but they love you. They'll put up with you. Everybody puts up with, you know, well, you know, my grandma, boy, she was a prayer warrior, and boy, she knew that Bible. Everybody tells stories like that. And I've done a dozen or more funerals of people who tell stories like that. Why? Because it makes an impact, and they remember that, and you need to just be yourself. And if you are a Christ follower, be a Christ follower everywhere you go, even in front of of your children no matter how rebellious they may be now i'm not saying be rude i'm not saying be ugly i'm not saying that you know you rub their face in it or anything like that i'm just saying you be yourself it ought to be natural and praising the lord ought to be something that we teach other generations to do and notice that the stones being piled up there so that when the children ask what king james here what meaneth these stones? That is a natural opportunity to talk to them. It wasn't forced. It wasn't scripted. It wasn't anything like that at all. It wasn't a sit down and let me tell you about these stones. Not like that. They're asking. And that's why Peter says in his epistle, be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies in you. Now, the only reason you give an answer is because there's a question. And we need to live our lives and be identified with Christ and His cause so that other people are doing what? Asking us about that type of thing. There ought to be a natural thing about all of this. That makes sense? Number three, it should be intense. I don't think the Lord is pleased with mediocre, lukewarm, tepid praise. And it certainly doesn't impress anybody who is watching us. If there's a lost person here tonight and they're watching to see how intense you are about your faith, did they get a good message by the way you sang? Did they get a good message by the way that you respond to something that you believe in? Are your children getting the idea, boy, this really must mean something to you because they're pretty intense about all of this. How does it compare to the way you watch sports? How does it compare to the way you do other things that you may be passionate about? See, it ought to be intense. Where do you get that? Here it is. You who fear the Lord, bless the Lord. Well, what does it mean to fear the Lord? It means you know Him. It means you honor Him. It means you glorify Him. It means you have experienced the Lord and his salvation. Now, the old uh, hymn we're marching to Zion has a line in it that says, Let those refuse to sing who never knew our God. You know what I say to that? Amen. There's no reason for them to do it. But children of the heavenly king may speak their joys abroad. In other words, we ought to be shouting. 
We ought to be singing. We have experienced the Lord. We know Him. We should not be tepid, lukewarm, mediocre when we talk about the Lord and when we sing His praises. And that's what the psalmist is saying here. You who fear the Lord, bless the Lord. And he's expecting something different and better from them than he is everybody else. Why? Because they know him. They have experienced him. In Psalm 118, verse 4, it says, Let those who fear the Lord now say, His mercy endures forever. I called on the Lord in distress. The Lord answered me and set me in a broad place. The Lord is uh, on my side and I will not fear. What can man do to me? You see, that psalmist was saying, I know how the Lord works. I know what he's done in the Bible. I know what he's done for people that I love. And I know what he has done for me. And I am not going to be a wimp. When it comes to this, I'm going to be shouting. I'm going to be singing. I'm going to be letting it be known. And I'm going to praise God with intensity. They have experienced his power. He has answered their prayers. How can you be apathetic about a God who loves you that much? And fourthly, our praise should be incomparable incomparable verse 21 blessed be the lord well which lord would that be everybody called their idols lord everybody called their gods their idols god everybody worshiped and sacrificed i mean good night even the prophets of baal when they were dancing around that altar praying for baal to send down fire good night they even cut themselves they would have hurt themselves they were serious about what they were doing I've heard people say over the years, well, you know, one thing you got to admire about those Jehovah's Witnesses, they're out, they're out there knocking on doors. Well, if that's true, then why aren't you? If that's really the standard, then why aren't you? Because you've got the truth. They don't. Why aren't you as intense about it as they are? Why aren't you uh, doing this? Because... Sometimes we compare ourselves to other religions. Would we be as self-sacrificing as the prophets of Baal? Uh, no, I don't think it's necessary. Well, I don't either. But the question is, but would we for the cause of Christ if it were ever called upon? And this is why I try to pray regularly for the persecuted church. Because all around the world there are people that live in communist countries people that live in Muslim countries who are shedding their blood for the cause of Christ. No, it's not quite like the prophets of Baal. Their cause is so much greater and so much higher. It's called the gospel and the glory of God. And because of that, they're sitting in a prison cell tonight instead of in an air-conditioned building. Because of that, they're being beaten. They're being starved. Because of that, they are concerned about their family. Because of that, they're concerned if they're a pastor or a deacon, perhaps. They're concerned about their church body because they can't be with them. They're like the Apostle Paul. And when we think about all of this, it ought to be that people look at us and say, how do you do it? Why do you do it? Well, why are you asking that question? Because I've seen religious people before and you're different 
You're different. I've seen people that were committed to different causes before, but there's something different about you. Why? Because our relationship with God, you cannot compare to a dead person's relationship to a dead idol. And I mean spiritually dead. And yet we see all of the things that they do for falsehood, for untruth. And we don't want to be inconvenienced for the truth of these things. That's why I say our praise should not even be comparable to what the world does because we have something and someone so much better and so much greater we ought to be in awe of him at all times. What Lord is he? Not just any old God, but this is the God who comes out of Zion. This is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of David, the God of Solomon. This is the God that we read about in the Bible, and he is the God of Israel who dwells out of Zion and who dwells in Jerusalem. How do you get a God who is omnipresent to dwell in Jerusalem? Simply because he wants to. And they built that temple to him, and while they were praying to him, and while they were praising him, that glory Shekinah cloud came down on that temple, and the presence of God was so strong, the Bible says that the priests couldn't even do their job. Can you imagine anything like that there's no idol that can match that there's no witchcraft that can match that there's no new age philosophy or activity that can match that because our God is alive and our God rules our God reigns our God is all-knowing our God is all-powerful and our God lives in us and we are in him and there's nothing greater than any of that so why shouldn't we do what he says because he ends by saying praise the lord this is a god who's identified clearly this is the only god not just one among many not just the best among many the only one and our praise should dwarf anything that is done by those who worship false gods. Wouldn't it be wonderful if the people of God on Sunday morning in all of the churches all around our metro area were louder than the people at Gaylord Family Stadium and Boone Pickens Stadium even combined? We ought to be. We ought to be. And isn't it to our shame that we would engage in all of the things that the world does and be enthusiastic and put our money in it and then hold back whenever it comes time to give praise to the Lord? We don't understand. My dad brought me home from the hospital, my mom and dad both, in a 55 Chevy. I kind of wish I had that car now. You know why? because they didn't know what they had. It was just a car. You know what I think about us as Christians? We don't know what we've got. 
we don't understand how great it is or we could not contain ourselves. I call your attention to 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 2. There is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one beside you. Nor is there any rock like our God. Hezekiah found that out. He was one of the few godly kings when the kingdom was divided. Israel in the north who didn't have any good kings and Judah in the south who had some good ones and Hezekiah was a good one. And when you look in 2 Kings chapter 19 verses 14 through 19, you find that Hezekiah was a man of prayer. Later he's going to pray and ask the Lord to extend his life because he, had, he was about to die and God answered that prayer. But in this particular time, uh, we all know that Israel, the northern kingdom, was carried off into captivity, uh, invaded by Assyria. And Judah, the southern kingdom, was invaded by Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon, and carried off into captivity. But what we don't always know is that the Assyrians were not just content to get the northern kingdom of Israel, they wanted Judah. And a guy named Sennacherib was uh, really threatening Hezekiah. And uh, he wrote him a letter telling him how the cow ate the cabbage. You ever heard that expression? I mean, basically, he is saying to Hezekiah, you're done, and there's nothing you can do about it. You know, but those two words again come up, but God. Here's what it says, verse 14 in the book of 2 Kings chapter 19. And Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and he spread it before the Lord. Then Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim, he's talking about the Ark of the Covenant there, you are God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Truly, Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they destroyed them. And it's talking about Assyria not destroying their own gods, but the gods of the nations that they conquered. Verse 19 says... Now, therefore, O Lord, our God, I pray, save us from his hand, that the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord God, you alone. Sounds like Hezekiah was doing what we talked about here tonight, giving praise to the Lord, giving glory to the Lord. Before he ever asked anything from the Lord, he began to praise the Lord. And then when he ended, what is he doing? He's giving a word of praise to the Lord that the nations may know that you are the Lord. Oh, Lord, hear and see and protect and guard us. 
And uh, Sennacherib, if you read on in that story, gets a little snotty, a little smart alecky to Hezekiah. You think your God's going to save you, basically, he says. And then another but God moment when God moves in and tells Hezekiah, I got this. And he sends an angel to destroy, I think it's 188,000 Assyrians overnight. And they turn and run like scared rabbits. And the people of God are saved. Hezekiah was a man of prayer. But in his prayer, it was not just saying, here's my shopping list, here's what I want, here's what you did for so-and-so, do it for me. That's kind of what we see today in the way people pray today. He was praying to the God that he knew and praying to a God that he was praising and blessing. And we need to be the ones who bless the Lord as well. Reminds me of an old song that says, You spoke the words and all the worlds came into order. Waved your hands and planets filled the empty skies. You placed the woman and the man inside the garden. And though they fell, they found compassion in your eyes. Oh Lord, I stand amazed at the wonder of it all. Yet a greater wonder brings me to my knees. Here's the important part. Lord, I praise you because of who you are. Not just for all the mighty things that you have done. Lord, I worship you because of who you are. It's all the reason that I need to voice my praise. Because of who you are. And I'll spare you the second verse. But do you get the point? So many times we are begging God to do things. We're talking about what God ought to do. We're telling Him what He ought to do. And here He is, our Creator, our Lord, our Sovereign, the Ruler of the universe. And we think we have to inform Him? We think we have to tell Him what to do? Somebody said the other day about, give me more information so I can pray specifically about this. Well, that's fine. But it's not necessary. You know why? Because God's not sitting in heaven going, Oh, whoa, you told me something I didn't know. Now, well, now I know what to do. That's ridiculous, isn't it? This is a God who knows everything. And we act like He is a bellboy. We act like He is sitting at the front desk waiting for us and we give Him a call and tell Him we'd like a Diet Coke brought up to the room. Or something like that. How horrible to think like that. Lord, I praise you because of who you are. Would you bow your heads? Would you close your eyes? And in a moment, I want you to pray for the people that are on this prayer list. But before you do that, I want you to give him praise tonight. And don't just praise him because of what he has done. That's important too. I'm not minimizing that. Praise him for who he is. And then move to what he has done. And then ask him to do those things in the lives of these people that you love.
That's the pattern of prayer that you find both in the Old and the New Testament. Oh God, you are the king, you are the ruler, you uh, are righteous and your judgments are always true. And you're the one who created the heavens and the earth and you raised your son from the dead. You're the one who made the blind to see. You're the one who parted the Red Sea. Now, Lord, would you work in my life like you did then? Would you work in the life of this person that is sick? Would you work in the life of this person who needs a job? Would you work in the life of this person who is lost? See how it works? Who he is, what he does, and what you want him to do. So let's go to it now. And thank you so much for being here tonight. And God bless you. And I hope you've been encouraged.